Welcome back everybody, we're now at episode 3 of the Lewis and Not Clark show. Today we have a very special guest, the legendary Craig Boer. Yeah, Craig Boer. It's good to have you. Welcome on the pod there. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, so I guess everyone's wondering, of course, we have a lot of Napoleon listeners. Brad Goostry, in fact, is one of our most faithful ones. Um, I guess the question we have is, when, when you got into Napoleon... How did that work out? Well, like when you got your degree in teaching, how did that work out getting plugged in Napoleon and getting your foot into the door there? Because there's probably a lot of different schools that you could have gone to, right? No, there were no schools to go to. No? No, Napoleon was the only option. That's why I went to Napoleon. Oh, really? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. Because um, you went to Michigan, right? No, I went, to, I went to Michigan my first couple of years, and then halfway through, uh, my grandpa was dying, and I kind of made a shift. We had some conversations, and I went into teaching. I'd always loved history, so I kind of, um, <clears throat> it's more about me doing what I want to do, love to do, versus the smart thing to do, which right. I was really business, which is kind of ironic, because now I'm doing a business, so it wasn't like I didn't have a passion for that, but I really have a passion for history, and that's going to be my lifelong passion. So it was like a bit of like a crossroads decision, you think, or? Oh, definitely, yeah, it was a huge crossroads decision, it should definitely change in life, and um, when I signed up, when I went to change my master to history, um, at the time, I was still at U of M, and the head of the department was a very well-renowned historian, uh, Papazian. He would actually be on TV for interviews and stuff. He was a, a, a very highly regarded in, in Russian history, and isn't during the Cold War and stuff like that. And I remember he looked at me and said, you're a fool to go into history. You'll never make any money. You'll never have a job. Wow, look so, at the, the confidence there, huh? Right. You're like, oh, yeah, this is for sure my decision right. now, huh? This yeah. guy come and talk to me. It's kind of been like so were life. you shaking your boots a little bit after no, that, or were no, you just like, I'm going to do it anyway? Yeah, I was at that point, I was set. So um, he was right in some sense. Uh, it was uh, The 80s was really a boom time after 1982 and you know, good times. And um, But I didn't finish graduating until 90. So I did my, um, my uh, student teaching in the fall at Wade Memorial, and I just assumed I'd be in the Detroit area. I felt mm-hmm. I, I right. lived there most of my life. I was comfortable there. It seemed like home. Yeah. Um, and I just figured I'd have a job in the Detroit area, and there were no jobs. Um, the economy took a dump in 1990. Uh, that was the recession that kind of got George Bush, the first one, out of office. See you later, and, bud. Uh, and right. Bill Clinton, you know, it's the economy, stupid. That was yeah. all during 90. And so there was just no jobs available. Schools were cutting back. There was, yeah. you know, was not much out there. So I was working a construction job. I had just gotten married. I've been married for a couple months. And um, I was working construction, and we're looking for jobs, and there's no jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife had some offers, uh, Sandy, because she had, some, she had an elementary degree, and there's more demand for that. But for history, no, nothing. So mm-hmm. Papazian was right. You know, there's no jobs available. So my wife— But you, did you feel like deep down that you knew there was going to be one? Or were you kind of just yeah, hoping I, I there just was? I just kind of felt I wasn't, I wasn't really panicked because I had a right. job in the job I had. But obviously, I'm looking at a teaching job. Like what your passion. What we were looking at was there was jobs out of the state. So what we were really starting to look at was maybe we go to California, maybe we go to Georgia. The Sun Belt mm-hmm. was growing. There was, a lot, you know, there was a larger youth population there, and it still is. And those areas are growing dramatically. So we were just looking like, well, we probably won't be living in Michigan. So we were actually looking to relocate. Okay. And I was at work, and um, Eastern Michigan had like a thing where you could look up before the internet it's like this big folder this big binder with schools with mm-hmm. you know stuff like that and i'm really into napoleonics napoleonic history is one of my most interesting things and she's flipping through the thing and she saw napoleon and it caught her eye and she looked down there hiring two history teachers oh and man yeah the deadline That's awesome. the deadline to apply was that day oh geez wow. so i can talk about good work. timing yeah, yeah you're like yeah see i'm not a salesman anymore right yeah. <laughs> I, I came home from work and i was all dirty and stuff like that she was hurry we got to get your resume and we got to so we were literally running because, of course, I was a construction job. It's right. Like, you know, Federal Express was right. close. Yeah. And the next day was the end day. So we literally got to the Federal Express. The guy was locking the door. Oh, wow. As we wow. got there. And we're pounding on the glass, begging him to open right. it. Try and get that for a yeah. movie script. Yeah. yeah. And the guy opened it up. And he let us in. And my wife sweet-talked the secretary. Um here at the school and my resume she didn't let you sweet talk him she's like no craig i'll I'll, I'll worry about it (laughs) i didn't have i wouldn't have the phone that was the funny thing too is you know you know today we're not cell phones and stuff but that's true we had we had bought an answering machine one of the old school answering machines 
and uh, Mike Schneider was the principal at the time. He had left um, a message on our answer machine. That's the only way we even knew we had a job interview. So Sandy was wow. home during the day, and she was able to talk to her during the business hours. So I did the interviews at Napoleon, had no clue about the town or anything about this area, came in cold turkey. And it's been a pretty amazing ride for the last 30 years. That's awesome. And that, so that was a pretty, like, fairly smooth transition as far as, like, the process of, like, when you knew you had an interview and then your first day of teaching? Or was it kind of, like, a lot of, like, oh, you got to do this paperwork and you got to do this thing and meet this criteria? and no, that would have been your first bad. teaching job, right? Yeah, Did they like experience job. with teachers at that point? Or were they just kind of looking for... Well, that's the funny about education. They... They like experience, but they don't want to pay you for any experience. So in education, they like no experience. I mean, they would prefer to have experience, but they want you to start at the zero step like an inexperienced teacher. So for financial reasons, the way schools are structured, you generally hire kids right out of school who don't know what they're doing, or maybe they have a year, maybe mm -hmm. two. But for the most part, um, it's not a business where you have someone with 10, 15, 20 years experience leave and go to another school. It's just not structured that way. Um, and if you leave the state, you lose your pension and stuff like that. So, um, no, I was actually pretty standard new hire in the education business. I'm this kid out of college, I don't have a clue. Um, it wasn't difficult. I mean, I'd already had my teaching degree. And in those days, if you had that, you're pretty well set. But um, it was not a smooth transition going into teaching. Teaching, 50% um, dropout rate in teaching in the first Jeez. five years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's never smooth for most teachers. You walk in and... Uh, you usually spend the first three or four years wondering what in the world you got yourself into. Yeah. Right. So you have to, it's more like you have to survive the hazing period mm -hmm. after that, you know, but I was going to say, cause, um, I worked at Paragon last year and I had to be a, a long, I was a long-term sub, but I was basically a teacher for seventh and eighth grade in English for four months. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it made me appreciate like people like you who've been doing it for so long. And it's cause you still have to find that, like that niche of, because even just that you have a degree in it, you still have to, like, be relatable to the kids. Right. So, like, you still got to be, like, personable and find that niche of, like, being genuine, you know? Mm -hmm. But you don't want to be, like, stale and boring. Sure. So, that how did you find that? How like, like, how long did that take? Was it just trial and error thing? It's four years. It's, it's for most people I've observed, it's, it's a three or four year process for most people. Now, if you're one of these people where you're, you're quite a bit older, you've had a lot of life experience, and then you go into teaching... I've seen some of those people step in and have a pretty smooth transition right in, but that's kind of the exception more than the rule. Um, teaching is all about relationships, and you don't build a relationship in a week or two weeks. Right. So, so by by its very nature, it's a kind of business where it just takes time. You know, you got to you have to invest in people's lives, and there has to be some feedback and and that kind of thing. That's probably why you got into it too, right? Because you had that passion for people. And... Oh sure. I mean, I did. I really had a passion for history, to be honest with you. So I had. I mean, I'm not that I'm against relationship. I'm into that, but I I was all about the history, and I it kind of came to me as I was teaching how much more important the relationship part it was. The history comes mm -hmm. along after the relationship. It's not the yeah. other way around. I was pushing the history. Now, if you have the history nut in your class who really loves history, yeah, that those kids are clued in right away. So, I mean, mm -hmm. immediately I had some kids that I had immediate connection with because they liked history. But if the kid didn't like history, I didn't know how to reach those kids because I didn't understand. You know, the relationship is the key thing. So, right. you know, it's not just that, but even the people that you work with and stuff like that. So it's, 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 it's a tough job because you have to give yourself out. You have to put yourself out there. And you see this when you're a paragraph. You put yourself out there before you get anything back. So mm -hmm. you get the reward. I mean, you people come back. They, you know, they give back to you. But it's usually you're giving first. And then once you've established that trust and that relationship, then you start seeing the reward later. Yeah. So a big part of teaching is you just got to be stubborn and stick it out, I mm -hmm. think, for a lot of young teachers. I think not get discouraged because there's a lot of discouragements at the beginning. You know, you, part of the teaching is, too, it's almost like a mission. Mm -hmm. You know, you have all, you're going to be the greatest teacher ever. Kid, every kid, student you have is going to be a history teacher when they're done and that kind of stuff. And then you realize they really don't give a rep. I mean, they've got dates they got to go to. they got sporting events. they right. got whatever. they got a million interests that have nothing to do with what you're teaching. So you think you some know, teachers take that personal, like, oh, oh I, didn't, yeah. I didn't really affect sure. that kid or. Sure. And especially because in teaching, you know, you're, it's kind of sold to young people. Like, you know, you're making a difference in people's lives and stuff like that. Right. So mm -hmm. when the first, re when the first responses are not that you do, you question, right. oh, am I doing the right thing yeah. or whatever, you know, it doesn't seem to be making a difference. So, um, and it wasn't like, I'm probably making it sound like it's horrible, horrible. It wasn't horrible, horrible. Cause like I said. There was already some kids who would catch on. And to be honest with you, I'm teaching history. You know, I'm doing what I love to do. Right. So yeah. there's a part of you that 
you're doing what you love to do, even if they're just kind of sitting like a right. You're still like it's a win-win either yeah. way. What's kind of saved me was, you know, I have other interests and other things. So what I found was those are the things kids connected to. Like my love for food, kids pick that up pretty quick. So you know, like my first year, you know, they would realize how I liked food, and I could get me. They'd get me off talking about food. So there was like yeah. things, you know. And, they're like, we're and, done. We're done here in history for today, Craig. Yeah, right. We're gonna yeah. talk about food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would talk about epic eating situations. So like that first year, first first second year, kids would come in and bring stuff in. They'd bring food in, and then there's a, and I, of course, part was they want to see me waste time eating the food. Right, right. <laughs> right. yeah. But part of the joke. And you were like, like yeah, sure, I'll eat it. Oh, yeah, sure. Was there already right. some memorable dishes that people brought in? You are like, wow, I need oh, to learn how man. to make that one. A million th- well, one thing was they would bring in like like a donut or something. Like it. And the whole thing was I had to eat the whole thing in one bite. So you pushed the whole thing. Oh, man, food. they were like. So it was very entertaining for the kids. They enjoyed it, but. They realized that what they really got into is the moon pies because those are huge. Right. Mm-hmm. And they realized if they give me moon pies, it would be a good five minutes before I could do it. <laughs> right. Because they're like, like we bought five yeah. minutes. Yeah. And usually, usually, it's, you know, I, I have like an iron gullet, so I don't really care. But some of the stuff they brought in was curious. Um, I would be like, that oh mystery gosh. meat. Yeah, there's one. Uh, I think a kid brought in some homemade donuts, and there was hair on them. Like oh, a lot of hair on that's them. the flavor, man. Well, what makes it rough is they're standing there. They're all excited. You know, oh look at this. You know, and they're watching you. <laughs> right. So you're standing yeah. there, and you're like, they're like, he won't eat this, and he's no. like, he's already Watch done. Watch me. Yeah. 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 So that was that was kind of interesting. Sometimes, probably the strangest thing was a kid brought in raw meat. Oh. Uh, rabbit meat one time. And, uh, he's like, hey, man, I just hunted this this morning. Yeah. They had a, they grew rabbits in the back and he brings it. It kind of looked like chicken is like a little Ziploc bag, like a little thin Ziploc mm-hmm. bag. And I always appreciated it and because the kids who brought the stuff in, they weren't trying to be jerks. They were really cool about it. Right. So once again, relationship, right? So this mm-hmm. is how we're building. It's like a right to passage, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, not even that, just I'm giving you something. So this kid does rabbits. That's his thing. So mm-hmm. he's all excited. But the rabbit, it was, the meat was warm and stuff. <laughs> oh. So I was just really nervous. I was like, I mean, it was probably fine, but I was like, oh my gosh. Well, I didn't know what to do with it. It's first hour. It's first hour of the day. So I wasn't thinking class is starting and teaching. You're just busy the whole day. You're run, run, run. So there's this closet and I stuck the ch- the rabbit up on the shelf in the closet, shut it, teaching. You know, teaching is the kind of job. It's not uncommon to go an entire day and you don't go to the bathroom the whole day because you're literally like you don't have the urge to go to the bathroom. You're so busy and you're right, running. Yeah. So, of course, I forgot about it. <clears throat> Totally forgot about the rabbit. That's why they say teachers are put on dialysis at the age of 50. Oh, I could see that. I could see that. I'm just joking. Yeah, I don't know. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so I left the rabbit up there. I totally forgot about it. Like three months go by. Oh. And this was on a closet I normally use. I'm surprised mm-hmm. it went three months. Right. You know? oh, yeah, it was a long time. And there was a pencil sharpener attached to the door. It's like this wooden door, old thing there. And so the kids would have to sharpen their pencils there, and the door kind of wiggle and stuff like that. Well, three months goes by. And the kids are taking a test, and I'm at my desk, and I'm sitting there doing my thing, and the door's wiggling, and this kid's sharpening his puzzle, and he's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Mr. Moore, something's dead, something's dead, something's wrong, there's a smell this coming is during out of the a test? Oh yeah, right during a test. Oh I mean, goodness, he As soon as he class. says that, I know exactly what he's saying, because like, oh my gosh, I left that right. rabbit meat in there three months ago. Oh my know, goodness. This whole time. And then you were like, they were like, eat it. Oh no, there's no, <laughs> So I try to calm the kid down, like, no big deal. Go back to your desk. Don't, don't disrupt class. You're like, I'm, I'm putting on the brave face. So he goes back. Things calm down. The door was shut, so no more smell. But as soon as class was over, I was like, I whipped that door open. Yeah, I get rid of the evidence. And sure enough, man, that, that rabbit had just desiccated to the point that it had bled through the Ziploc bag onto oh. the wood. Oh, my. And, I mean, it was the most horrible, awful yeah. smell you can imagine. So, so that's but that was that the smell on when I went to high yeah. school, huh? Yeah. No, I'm just joking. Well, in the closet, the crazy thing is they're wooden shelves. So it right. totally bleached out the wooden shelf. Right. And if you go to that room to this day, you can see the bleach mark on that shelf oh. from that, that rabbit that laid there. All the time. Craig, so Craig, Craig went to Sandy and was like, I'm going to make my mark on this school one yeah, day. Yeah. yeah, it's there. It's there to Sure enough. Then, yeah, I changed the thing. So. so then, so that was 1990, right? Your first year or 91? Yeah, it, like it might have been my second or third year that happened. But it was that kind of stuff. You know, kids would bring yeah. stuff in and I would eat them. So if, like the first few years, it was all about kids bringing in food stuff that kind of declined over time but i wasn't really pushing you know i'm getting fat in middle age I don't really <laughs> yeah. so then when did you stuff. start coaching football well that was right away um i was a wrestling coach in college that was kind of a happenstance i had coached i had wrestled in high school and i started going to u of m and i wanted to continue wrestling but u of m dearborn didn't have a wrestling program so our church had a school a private school and um 
they're running their sports programs. They want to start a wrestling team. There's this guy. He had wrestled. He had been a state champ, blah, blah, blah. He's going to coach the team. I was going to be his assistant. And so I was like, okay, I'll schedule my classes so I can in the afternoon and come and come coach. Right. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. not uncommon. You often see a lot of kids who just have graduated like assistant coaches or mm-hmm. out, whatever. And um, literally the day before the season started, the guy dropped out. So they're like, you got to be the head coach. So here I am. Like, Did you put your resume college. in for that one too? Or? There's no resume. There's they were, no they were like, no, we need you. Exactly. Yeah. We don't care if you keep a rabbit head yeah. in the exactly. closet for three months. We need you. Now, this is before I even got to Napoleon. This is like all the right. before mm-hmm. So um, I did that for the five years because there's four and a half years that I was in school, including my half year of um, student teaching. And I, I worked the construction job for the other half year until I got hired. So I, I coached for five years, and it was amazing. It was a great experience. I built a team literally from nothing and good kids. I don't really always know what I was doing, but I was mm-hmm. really young, so I'm cool. You know how that is with, with kids. Right, yeah. So it was fun, you know. And, and so then I come to Napoleon, and they were looking for, of all things, looking for a history teacher, and they were looking for someone who could uh, do wrestling and football. I played football. I never coached it. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I had coached wrestling. So they bring me as the assistant wrestling coach with Todd Anderson. He had just come in the same year. He got hired. He's the yeah. teacher they hired. So yeah, I remember that. Together. So we were doing the wrestling thing. And then football was more like, look, we need a football coach. We're hiring you. You're going to coach football. And, and you're like, like, you know, I'll try it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, then, and in schools, that's the thing about schools, especially when times are tight. When schools hire you, there's usually an expectation you're not just going to teach. Right. You're going to run National Honor Society. You're going to do mm-hmm. student council. You're going to do these other things because – you know, the teachers are holding down all these extracurricular things. And, and to some extent, there's almost like a mark of shame if you don't do some kind of extracurricular mm-hmm. thing. After they asked you to? Well, if you better be doing it, that's kind of the expectation. Yeah. So I, I was certainly not against coaching football. I thought that was pretty cool, but I had no experience in what I was doing. So that was really a ex- uh, wild thing because <laughs> they told me that the team was loaded. It was a good team of players and stuff like that. And I had <laughs> they had to sell you no a little idea. bit, right? Well, oh, they're loaded. They're gonna be great. And Don Baxter was the coach, and he head coach, and he was helping me out a little bit. And um, but I didn't know what I was doing. I'm just coaching based on how I played. This is what you right. do in practice, right? So, you know, growing up in Detroit, I mean, they, like they had this rule. They must have put it in after I had left school because you had to have three days without pads before you could hit. Mm. Which I thought was ridiculous because growing up in Detroit, they gave you your pads. You started hitting immediately. Right. It was like full contact all the time. Well, yeah, states, states and regions is on the line. Sure, yeah. sure. But um, no, I come and this is a state rule. You got to have three days. Of, so you do three days of no contact. I'm like, okay, this is hokey pokey. But I'm like, the fourth <laughs> day we're hitting. We're oh like, yeah, I gotta yeah. see what these kids. Can Oklahoma do. pit so, drill all day. Exactly, and that's that's kind of what we had. <laughs> yeah, I'm lining them up, and I mean they're bam right off the bat. So sure enough, here's your lesson as a, as a young coach. Very first thing as a coach the two kids come up there and it turns out i got this super hard-nosed kid and he's this other kid is a tough kid too and they're going to do the tackle draw first right off the bat and right off the bat the super hard-nosed kid is my middle linebacker he just blows this kid up just puts him <laughs> on the ground and he's not breathing anyone knocks the window and mm-hmm. he's there going oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and i'm sitting there thinking oh my gosh I've been working here for four days, and I killed a kid. Yeah. No, me, no what, I, what actually happened was Craig was like, let's go. Right. Well, he was at first, like, <laughs> at first like... I was like that, and then the kid's laying on the ground. I'm not a medical person, so I'm terrified. Like, I know he knocked the wind out, but when he's not breathing and he's turning purple, you get kind of scared. It's like, not yeah. when you're like, I get up. done something really bad. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, the other coach, the, the eighth, I was coaching seventh grade at the time, the eighth grade coach on the other side of the field, he saw that. And he was much more ease the kids into it, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He comes running from the other side of the field. You're going to kill one of these kids. What are you doing? <laughs> doing full-blow tackles right up. They haven't even done anything yet. Who was that? It was one of the other coaches. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, well, I felt bad. I mean, he was right. I probably should like, we should probably should at least practice tackling drills before we actually just had him hit each other. But you, you were just so annoyed with that three-day thing, yeah, right? That's right. how it went. So, oh, my gosh. So that was my first lesson. But I was a pretty – Tough call. I mean, growing up in Detroit, that's just how it is. There's no easing into anything. They you're pretty. Uh, you're, you're pretty legendary when it came to middle school football. Like just the R about you, because I mean, when we were like sixth grade and even fifth grade, all the kids above us would be like, "You got to play for Craig. Like, you uh-huh. got to play for Boer. Yeah, because they were like, huh. they know what they're doing, and you guys will win. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't really say anything about the other coaches, but right. you know. And well, plus, you meet my time. uncle. I was like, that'd been a cool opportunity, but. Yeah, that took some time, though. It was about three or four years. Yeah. Just like, yeah. just well, I think it does for every coach. Yeah, I was going to say. You know, and I, I was very fortunate. I had a um, Bob McCombs. Oh, yeah. Uh, was legend. Legend, legend, mm-hmm. legendary baseball coach. But a lot of people know he coached football for quite a few years, too. And 
Um, he on a, he was coaching with Baxter at the time, and my first couple games, I I'm I'm calling the plays. I'm doing everything. I never called the play before. I mean, they gave me the playbook and stuff, but. And obviously, I've been a football fan my whole life. I have some sense of strategy and stuff like that. You were like Hail Mary. But, I, you know, and this is the important thing you should keep alive, especially in teaching. I'm going to assume this is any profession you go into, but especially in teaching, you got to have allies. And, and because mm-hmm. it is has such a high dropout rate and stuff like that, those allies you have when you don't know what you're doing are critical. You know, a mentor teacher that kind of takes you under the wing and helps you or whatever else. And um, there was a dad who was coaching with me. It's just me and his dad. So, and... The dad was a super good guy, really good. Dude. That's Napoleon, by the way. Yeah, he is. You can just take dads and just still be coaches. Yeah. yeah, he was. And what was great about it was he didn't have a kid on the team. He had a kid who was coming up, and he eventually was looking like, "Okay, I'll coach mm-hmm. him." But he was just doing it. You know, he That's was just awesome. volunteering. He was getting no personal benefit out of it because, you know, his he didn't have a kid on the team. And he had been around the system a little bit. And he he was so invaluable, and he was such a good guy because. He was just a soft-spoken dude, wouldn't really get into stuff. But like, for example, the first game I'm coaching, you know, I'm playing like normal high school, college football roles. So we're near midfield, and it's like fourth and one, and I decide to punt. And he kind of, and I could, all he did was raise his eyebrows and look at me. And I was like, well, you got to play field position, you got to punt. So I had the kid punt, but what I don't realize is it's middle school. And you just run up the middle and get that yard. Yeah, you right. get the yard. You get mm-hmm. middle school, you only get, and the clock runs as lame minutes. It's so like the middle school game, you get only a three or four or five possessions a game. you got to make them count. You know, you right. can't oh, yeah. waste possessions. Mm-hmm. And if you're anywhere near midfield, you do not punt because, of course, what happens? You know, it's a middle school punter. So the kid punts like a 12-yard punt or something, <laughs> so, which is normal. And that's if it doesn't yeah. get blocked. Yeah, right. 15, 20 yards. And not only that, but, you know, you find out middle school special teams are like stealing in baseball. If you have stealing in third grade or second grade, well, then the kids just steal every single time. Right. And in middle school, special teams can often be that way where, you know, you're really taking a risk when you punt because your punter probably can't kick it that far. So you're not really gaining right. very much. Unless you're Zach Canan. Yeah, and then, and then, of course, in middle school, kids stand around and watch. And what are you doing? You're punting the ball to their very best athlete with the greatest speed, and he's got a 50-yard wide field, mm-hmm. and you've got no one covering him because in middle school, your coverage kids don't get down there. So you're punting a short punt, low altitude, to their fastest kid who has a running start, and you have your slow, fat lineman <laughs> trying to influence you yeah. to do it. And helmet two yeah. sizes too big. And... Yeah, if you right. look at the punt return – a lot of times they turn into touchdowns, or a lot of times you end up, mm-hmm. why did I punt the ball? Because the ball's at the same spot it was, or you're actually further, but right. you get better off just trying the first time. Yeah. So it was that kind of, like, his name was Bill. He I, he didn't he didn't criticize me, mm-hmm. but as soon as I saw how crappy that punt was, I said, you know what, you're right. Mm-hmm. And I've been very fortunate when I was coaching. This is really the secret here is I had people coaching with me that were really good people. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, you, nothing you do in life you can do on your own. Like, obviously, yeah. you're important. You're making decisions. But, you know, those kinds of things. You know, he was there. Um, we were very successful the first year anyway. We won four of the games and had a pretty good season. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Cause especially as the, but, you know, I mentioned Bob McCombs. And he came in, and he would he was obviously coach at the high school. But during the games, he would go up in the booth, and he would run down like, hey, you got to do this. You got to look, look at what, look at this hole there. Because – Part of coaching on the sidelines, you have to look at the field from the sideline. Right, and see you can't see, you can't see directly yeah, down. Yeah, in the middle school game, you don't have like the big headsets and all that yeah. stuff going on. So you gotta have to be <laughs> a sideline coach, you right? But he played a really key role in helping me just how to look at the field and how to see. Hey, there's an opportunity here. If you run the ball here, you'll have more success. Or look at what this kid. And so he was like a big deal. It wasn't like he did every single game, but like the first two or three games, he was there. And he was a big reason we won two of those first four games. And then I kind of figured it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the training wheels are off. But there's like there's a lot of things like that. There were parents. There were coaches. There were other teachers. And so um, – and I had good assistants. And so once I kind of figured out what it was all about, then, you know, we started to have a lot of success coaching and stuff like that. But this is – it's really a, a lot of similarities to the classroom. You know, you're making relationships – um, really what you're doing when you're a teacher or you're a coach is you're holding people accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a teacher, you're holding kids accountable for what they're supposed to be learning. And you have to right. do it in a way that they don't feel overburdened, but at the same time, they got to feel stressed. There's got to right. be, you know, a good coach, you're getting more out of your kids than what they had when they came in. So mm-hmm. you're pushing them beyond what they think they can do, but you know they can do it. And then you let them succeed and achieve it. And they're like, oh, 
I got this, and it's the same thing in the classroom. Like, oh, I can't, this test is, this essay stuff is too. And then they're writing essays, and they start to have some success, and then they start taking ownership of it. Then you're fine. Then mm -hmm. you're just, then you're just kind of tweaking. You're like, I did my that. job. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is why time is so important in teaching and education and coaching, is because once you kind of establish yourself and you have that reputation, you don't have the problems. You don't mm -hmm. have fights with kids. You don't have fights with parents because you're a known commodity. When you first start coaching, you first start teaching, no one knows who you are. And especially in a small community like Napoleon, Napoleon's a very tight-knit town. And you have people who have been here for a long time and are very, very invested in the community. So when you come in from out of the community, to some extent what they're – I mean, they give me a chance, obviously, but – to some extent, they want to see if you're for real. Are you mm -hmm. going to stick around? Are you going to be a flash in the pan? I mean, can, right. considering yeah. the fact that half of all teachers end up leaving. So, part I mean, of you went four wins in your first yeah. year of teaching. Yeah. yeah, that helped a lot. But in four, it did. It did because mm -hmm. when you have success, you know, I think in any school, especially in a small community, because the percentage of kids who are in special, you know, the after school activities, it's a much higher percentage of the school population. You know, mm -hmm. like when I go to Redford Union, they have I don't know twelve, thirteen hundred kids or whatever. You know, there's only I mean, a lot of kids play football, but let's say the whole football program maybe has 70, 80 kids in the program out of 1,300. Yeah. You know, you're a distinct minority. But when you're in a small school, you know. You're like, I'll just take what I can get. kids right. on the football team. That's like yeah. half of a graduating class. Yeah. So, so the impact is big. And when you can have some success in your extracurricular activities, that really helps you in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Plus, you now have those relationships. You know, those football kids, you see them three or four years later in the high school because I coach middle school. And you've already got that relationship. They're already going to let you push them. They're going to let you ask them to do things in the classroom that other teachers, they give a hard time, but your coach bores so then they give you a chance. So right. That's why time is... He had this whole plan. Like, yeah. at home, he's like, oh, I got to do this. Right. And then... Yeah. It's more realizations you have as you're teaching. Mm -hmm. So... That's cool. So how, like how long did that take till you were actually, like, reaping benefits back? Three, four years. It's a three or four year process. So... If you think that's the same teacher, for every teacher, though, or does it? I'd say most. If you just stay on that trend of, it's probably different. I've noticed, like if you're, like, so if you're a teacher who grew up in the community and you know people, and you're pretty mature and you got your, you're like, hey, see you, Aggies later, yeah. right? That that obviously helps a lot. But I'd say for most teachers, because teaching people don't see it's super complex job. It's just unbelievably complicated. And, uh, it's much more like medicine, where you can go to med school, but if you know the really successful doctors. They've been just practicing medicine forever, mm -hmm. and they just see us something. They automatically know what it is. Yeah. And teaching is a lot like that. It's more of an art than it is a, a science. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to learn. And it's unique for every person. Like some people are kind of loud and boisterous, and other people are kind of calm and mild and meek, whatever. All those styles can work, but it's got to be you. So what you're really doing is you're, you're putting yourself, who you are, and your personal traits out there to kind of be judged by the world. Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of learn how to make that work. And it's just a learning process. So even if you have a lot of skills you're bringing into it so your transition is easier, mm -hmm. I don't think it's easy. I think it takes time. Now, once you got it figured out, the job is still very challenging. But once you have those skills in place, it becomes so much easier because now it's like secondhand. You know, it's like when you first started driving and you were 16 and you're just trying to mentally can remember to put in the blinker and do all those kinds yeah. of things versus driving for a long time and it's just second nature. So that's really what makes teaching, you know, possible is once you have the second nature thing going on along with the relationships. So speaking about football, were there any stories like looking back where you're like, I can't believe I had that kid on the team or, you know, this story happened and it was like, you know, this is what coaching is about because then you have these stories that you can share with, like, you know, like Zig or someone. Um, like, oh, yeah, well, that story is goofy. Wait till I tell you this one, you know. I Did you a, have any a couple that were like. I could write a book on the stories. Good <laughs> ones or bad ones? I don't know. There's so but, many. Uh, well, give us some that were, like, are funny, you know, like some that you were just like, oh, man. wow, I don't even know how to explain that one. We just, oh, my gosh, there's so many things these kids did. First of all, kids are hilarious. They're they're. And especially as I got later in my career and I realized I wasn't going to be doing this too much longer. You know, me and, and uh, my assistant I had for most of my career for work was Brian Beeman, and he was unbelievably wonderful. Stud. Oh, Shout yeah. out to Brian Beeman there. I mean, I can't tell you how critical he is in, in just making it all work. And he's like the, the horse whisperer with kids, you know. He just he gets kids psychologically <laughs> and stuff. But he is so funny. He'd wear these dark sunglasses so the kids couldn't see his eyes. 
and he would have like these in, the expressionless faces so they'd be scared to death and he he was just playing them and we they'd be laughing we'd be laughing every practice. so you had a bill belichick on your hand there huh he, he Who was, would just... bill belichick is his, is his hero <laughs> kind of that's what he looks up to yeah. but he's not bill belichick because he has too much fun you know right yeah right. and honestly <laughs> we would just be gut shots laughing. fired at bill right oh, we'd be gut laughing all the time there were so many things we did and so many goofy stuff and the kids themselves you know just the funny things they do you know the kid who wears blue jeans under his football pants to practice every day you know the kid who doesn't have cleats and has little flip-flop shoes and sliding around the desk the kid who doesn't know how to put his his equipment on properly so he has his his cup on backwards because he thought it was supposed (laughs) to protect his tailbone he was born that way yeah you have to kind of explain to him well the cup goes in the front part you know right well thanks mr brewer (laughs) They put their shoulder pads on backwards all the time. Oh my gosh! You know, and they're they're choking themselves. <laughs> right. the back of the shoulder pad. Like, it's like it's like that kind of stuff all the time. Plus the goofy things they did. You know, like like even like my last year. You know, the kid who comes to workouts the first day and you're doing the conditioning and. And the kid literally has his pockets full of like king dongs and ho hos and you know <laughs> sausages and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Wonderful kid, and these kids are great. There's nothing wrong, but no, they don't know. You know, they don't. They're right. goons. And so, from a coaching standpoint, you're just laughing because you know they. You can't even think of this stuff. Oh, right. they're like they're like babes coming out of the snow. You know, mm-hmm. like there's all clean. Yeah. yeah. But the funny thing is, once you have the thing going, the kids buy into it. Then you get them doing all kinds of crazy. Right. Stuff, yeah. Know? So. So like your first day practices, like specifically the ones that you could start hitting on, is that when you see like who the comics are of the group, like who like the kids aren't probably gonna be good at football, but they're good comedic relief, you know? Somewhat, but honestly, I see comics. I mean, from day one they walk in, you can just tell, man. Certain kids, they just have that that it factor, you know, the goofy mm-hmm. kid that, you know. For example, we had a thing called Strongball. So this is like a maybe Brian's Belichick thing, but you know, <laughs> if we have a problem with fumbling, he found this old ratty, messed up ball. The hides off of it, it's just terrible. And of course, that became our practice ball because mm. it was hard to hold on to. It was slick, right. so we called it strong ball because we had a rule that every time you'd fumble, the whole team would do push-ups. So that was one of the little things that, for me that worked was. If there's going to be a consequence, you have the whole team do the consequence. Because right. if only one kid does it, then that kid's being singled out. But if the whole mm-hmm. team has to do it, now and, – and what you really want in, in education is you want peer pressure. You want peer pressure in a positive way helping you. Yeah. Hey, this is what – Because it's like a team effort, you know? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and since and especially in football, every kid messes up. Every Even the best kid on the team messes up. So – Every kid gets a chance to be the one that made everyone do push-ups. So, mm-hmm. and you teach them this. <laughs> you know, they don't believe you the first week. You know, the first week they're yelling at the kid who screwed right. up. Yeah, they're like yeah. Robert. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but by the fourth or fifth week, they all know. And so it's always funny because like you're you're doing strong ball, and they they drop it, and at first you, they're waiting for you. And like I said, it's all about holding kids accountable. And it's the same mm-hmm. thing in the classroom. When they screw up, they look at you like, "Are you going to do anything?" And that's where your right. credibility is on the line right. as a coach and as a teacher. So like you tell them, "Hey, if we fumble, we got to do push-ups." Well, sure enough, they'll fumble, and no one does push-ups. They look at you, and they're waiting for you to hold them accountable and say, do mm-hmm. your 10 push-ups. Well, sure enough, well, 11 push-ups for us all the time. But eventually, it gets to the point, you know when a coach, it's just like with teaching, you know when you're getting ahead, because by the middle of the season, every time, they drop the ball, they fumble, I don't say one thing. Yep, all they're of already them down. start doing push-ups. Yeah, and they do them on their own. <laughs> And, and then, then that's when the you go next, like, why are you guys doing push-ups? Yeah, yeah. Right. And then the, the, next, the next level of winning is then when it's your, your team captains that tell everyone to do the push-ups. Because at mm-hmm. some point halfway through the season, you're not doing any of that stuff. The team captains are holding them accountable. And that, that's when, as a coach, you have a lot of success. Because mm-hmm. kids will disappoint the coach. They don't want to disappoint their friends. So right. if, like, right. the, if, the, mm-hmm. if the captain of the team is like, they get your crap together. Yeah, and, but, but when you do it collectively, because the captains <clears throat> right. will screw up too. Yeah, so the right. captains have to eat whole. So, in a some in a weird level, you have a certain amount of leadership, but at the same time, you're all on the same level because we've all been there before. Mm-hmm. So, we had the strong ball this one time, and we made a big thing out. Like some days, like we'd have like fumble practices, and like he put oil on it, and like he'd have he'd have a barrel, a bucket of water, and we'd dump it in the water. So the thing was soaking right. wet with oil on it and then run practices and drills. Oh, jeez. Like oh, it became like a thing. Fumble you know? mm-hmm. And we'd make this big thing out of strong ball. So sure enough, this, not too long ago, a few years ago, um, we had strong ball. We took it to the practice field, but the high school practice field, which has like a chain link fence all the way around it with yeah, yeah. barbed wire on top. Crazy kid. We get all the way back to the school. We're strong ball. Where's that? <laughs> and the kids are, oh, 
Strongball, where's Strongball at? And I was a coach, you're laughing because it's like, you, yeah, they're, they're into right. it. But I didn't even think anything about it. So, oh, I'll get it tomorrow, you know. So we're sitting in the office, and about five, six minutes later, this kid's huffing and puffing, because it's like a half a mile to the field. Yeah. This kid's huffing and puffing and exhausted. Here's Strongball, Coach. Here's Strongball. <laughs> no way. He ran all the way to the field and came back with But the crazy thing was, that field has barbed wire around the top right. of the fence. Like, How did you get that? The, 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 the game was like, why well, climbed over the fence, Coach? No and way. Like, oh, my gosh. It's, we're, we're, we're oh man! Like, that's, but and that's he's like, "What's so funny?" Like, yeah, exactly. Right. The kid's like, I, I did the job. <laughs> yeah, I did the job. He's like, "I so went and got it for you, man." You so those are the kinds of things that create a lot of fun. That was seventh grade, right? Was well, that was that his seventh grade year? I, I learned, at least for me, um, I don't know, my sixth or seventh year of coaching um, was looping, where I would coach seventh grade and I'd stay with those kids through eighth grade. So most right. years, not every year. That's why I wasn't able to have him. Yeah, most years we'd loop, and you would stay with the same group for two years. And most of the time, you'd win X number of games your seventh grade year, but the eighth grade year, you'd usually win even more than you did mm-hmm. the year before because there's a real, once again, relationships. Yeah. You know, when you have the kids in eighth grade, you don't have to teach them all these responsibility right. things. Mm-hmm. When you have your eighth grade group you coached the year before, all that responsibility and buy-in is there the first day of practice. Mm-hmm. And plus, you know the kids. You know, people think as a coach, you see everything, but you really don't. you got 30-some kids you're running around. You're trying to do... 11 starting positions on offense and defense and you got special teams and mm-hmm. if you think about a typical two-hour practice that's really not a lot of time to evaluate a kid so yeah. part of your problem in coaching that i think most parents don't realize is they probably haven't looked at your kid a whole lot like if like if your kid's like a standout kid like they're running like three links farther than all the other kids and stuff like that well that's obvious okay this kid's gonna play here or there but really you only have a couple so kids basically any weatherspoon kid Exactly. It's a Weatherspoon kid or a bunny or something like that. Yeah. You know them. Oh, yeah. But really, most of the kids are about kind of an equality there. Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. a few that are really, really horrible. And um, I know it's fun to pick on those kids, but actually as a coach, your your goal becomes, okay, I'm going to make this kid better. He's not a good football player now, but he he might grow six inches. It's probably tricky, too, as a middle school coach because you're not – coaching them as far as like the trick plays and like you're basically you're giving them the fundamentals yeah well, and that's it basically yeah i mean trick plays are important on some level but and I, I think if that's your coaching style i think that's a bad way to coach i think right you know if kids but like the more of like tackle, you yeah. know like the more complicated systems yeah. and stuff like that yeah. like you're not going to give your quarterback like a john gruden like 10 word play name yeah you know yeah, yeah. if it's one that's pushing it right there right they're middle schoolers so exactly. one of the funny things about coaching middle school is middle schoolers. Middle schoolers are great people. They're, <laughs> they, you know, what, what you love about middle schoolers is the whole world is open to them. They're gonna, they're still young enough. They're gonna be anything. They're gonna be an astronaut. They're gonna be president. They're gonna be a pro football player. They're gonna be all these wonderful things. Yeah. But they're now getting out of elementary, and there's now they're starting to make look more, a little bit more like adults, especially for between seventh and eighth grade. By the time they get to eighth grade, they're starting to look like men now. Right. Like they're, mm-hmm. They haven't filled out yet, but their height is there. Mm-hmm. Some of them already reached pretty close to what they're well if they if they ate rabbit they'd already have like a mustache yeah, right and stuff exactly. and... yeah yeah you get some beards and stuff. so <laughs> the fun thing is is they're 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 right on the cusp of all that stuff so there's from a coaching standpoint it's very enjoyable it's very mm-hmm. rewarding because you actually can see a lot of those changes going on but you also realize for some of these kids that are super standouts they have hit their adult peak and you see this a lot you know they're seventh and eighth grade phenom and they literally didn't grow another inch or gain another pound the next four years. Mm-hmm. And now they're undersized in high school. So Yeah. Ryan coach, Tim was actually the tallest kid in my grade. Yeah. Until fifth grade. Yeah. And so you just can't, you know, as a coach, you're evaluating kids for the game I'm having this week. But you're also evaluating kids for the future. So what you're really, your goal is you want to teach them things like basic work ethics. Mm-hmm. You know, things that if they never play football again, they learn how to push themselves to do something. Yeah. And then also, you know, just to love the game. You know, it's... They practice should be fun. So it probably sounds like awful because we're talking about push-ups and they're doing all these things. But <laughs> as a general rule, I feel like our practices were usually pretty fun. The kids are, you know, another thing would happen later in the year and you knew you had things going well is you get to the end of practice and kids are like, oh, man, we're done already? Is practice over? Yeah. That's when it's good. When the kids are having fun at practice and stuff like that, now you know you're – because when I say fun, they're doing push-ups, they're running, they're doing all mm-hmm. kinds of hard physical things. But because they've bought into the concept, they're not complaining that they're working hard because the reason we called it Strongball was doing push-ups is an opportunity to get stronger. So right. so much of life is how you, mm-hmm. like, 
push-ups aren't a punishment, they're a reward. It's a chance for you to build more muscle. Who doesn't want that? You know, running a lap is a chance to get in better shape and be physically, and aren't you out here to get in better shape and mm-hmm. be more physically fit? So isn't that the goal? So, no, I just, I'm the kind of kid who likes to climb barbed wire fences and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just want an option to do that. Yeah. But you know, in middle school, that's not the normal, they're kids. So right. what, you know, if you say you're teaching basics, um, I'm kind of feeding off of that. But, right. But the basics you're really teaching them is how to be an adult. And in the case of football, you, there's a lot a of man. life lessons. How do you be yeah. a man? Yeah. You know, you take responsibility for your stuff. If you jumped off slides or you fumbled a ball, you should be the first one on the ground doing the push-ups. You're the one who let everyone down. And, and, and when middle schoolers come in, if you know middle schoolers at all, they've never done anything wrong. Right. Even when they do something wrong. When a middle schooler does something goofy, I wasn't me. Mm-hmm. They, look at them. They're doing it too. Right. Yeah. They're doing it too. Yep. And what you're really doing as a middle school coach in wrestling and football is you're getting them out of that mindset of, it's you. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it's not you, it's mm-hmm. you because you got Napoleon on your shirt and right. you represent the school. So if the mm-hmm. team loses, you're not looking at the kid who cost the team with a big mistake during the game. You were on the field. You were playing the game. Yep. It's it's a collective a- activity. And so that's really what you're teaching. And if you teach that basic, I mean, obviously the blocking and tackling is huge, but mm-hmm. that mental approach is such a big deal. It makes such a difference in how kids perform later, hopefully. Yeah. I got a story to share. So. So my eighth grade year, I had Zig and Witty, and uh, so you would have been seventh grade, mm-hmm. and so we, you know, we felt like the big kids on the block or whatever, and we're looking at them and we're like, you know, those kids are weak. Those kids don't know how to play football. And then Zig would come up and he's like, "Hey boys, how you guys gonna play today?" And then we'd be like, "Well, we don't know, coach. I mean, you're supposed to, you know, have the plays ready or whatever." Mm-hmm. So sure enough, actually, I told I told one of the stories last week. His name was Nathan, and he was in my uh, grade. He was this big, huge kid. We called him House. Mm-hmm. And I shared the whole story about him last week. But uh, there were other kids on that team, though, especially that eighth grade year, where we were just so we were so confused. We were like, we're not. We didn't win a game that year. I think we won against East Jackson, but the rest of the year we were getting blown out, like thirty-six nothing and stuff. And everyone's like everyone would say this though they'd be like they'd look at your practice and they'd be like man that looks tough that looks like they're actually working and stuff mm-hmm. and that's when i was like we just got a bad team and like you know zig would just zig's a great guy you know he's he was a great like guy to be around but if it came to like coaching football like it was just like it was so confusing because i'd be like he'd be like getting in our faces he'd be like coach the ball catch the ball and we're like we didn't like we're running on that play and we're just like oh man and you guys just seem a lot more sophisticated and it just seemed you know you'd actually work for it you know mm-hmm. but there'd actually be kids like captains on our team that they'd be doing tackling drill and we're like thank goodness we don't do that mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's just like what is going on right now with the atmosphere here well don't forget about what i said about second nature you know once you've done something for a long time you start incorporating things. Now, what you should really be doing in your life is when you reach a point in your career where you're doing something second nature, then you improve on the second nature stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, you walk out of the classroom, you're doing your thing, you got your system, it works well, make it better, make it better. And hopefully you're trying to teach kids that too. It's so like we would always tell our kids, every day should be, you'd be better than you were before. You're doing all this work, you're doing all this running, you're doing all these push-ups. You should be stronger today than you were yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously you have off days, but your goal should be continuous improvement and that's kind of what you're trying to do with the kids but one of the tough things about teaching and about coaching with kids is you don't always get the reward mm-hmm. you know that's why i think the ethics are so important you do the right thing you do the hard work knowing you may not get the payoff you may not win the game yeah. you know and, and i'll be honest there's some years you're coaching or some classrooms you have where the kids just don't have the talent's not there. I mean, talent Right. Matters. I mean, you know, yeah. If you got a kid that runs a 4-4-40 in seventh grade, you're going to win a lot of games. Mm-hmm. You know, you give that kid the ball 30 times, he's going to score five or six touchdowns. It's going to be hard to lose. And there's other, there's other teams, you, you know, one year I remember we were coaching, they were great kids. But, you know, they were shouting out, we'd have them count. You know, <laughs> one, two, three. And they're doing the thing, and it's like a seventh grade group, and it's all Sopranos. Not one oh my goodness. Team, not one. No one's like one. Yeah, two had hit their her their growth spurt. So I mean, of course we're getting pounded, but you know we go to play other schools and they'd have a few kids on their team with mustaches and stuff like that and some man muscles. Right. And your kids are all still basically elementary school bodies, mm-hmm. and 
but you still teach the ethics. Like they're yeah. working hard. So you know, one of the things I think people need to be patient with is if you see the the kid doing the work, give them some patience. I mean, maybe patience with the coach, but it's patience with the kids too. You know, mm-hmm, sometimes. Mm-hmm. I had groups that were not very successful in middle school, but had a lot of success in high school because a lot of the kids grew and matured. I've had other groups that were very successful in middle school, but I had a whole bunch of kids that already hit their adult size, and they, not that they were bad in high school, but didn't have the same kind of success because guess what? The other school's kids hit puberty and caught up with them, and right. it was more competitive. So, you know, it's more about doing the right thing and, you know, discipline mm-hmm. and attacking something. And it's same in the classroom, you know, it's... Some classes have tremendous academic success and others don't. But one thing that's consistent is you can have a lot of fun in the classroom. You can do a lot of cool things, mm-hmm. you know, even if you don't necessarily see the, res- the test results you want to see. Right. And I think our society has a struggle because our society is all about results. And I get mm-hmm. it. Results matter at the end of the day. You're making a profit or losing money or whatever. But um, how you go about it makes so much of a difference. You know, If you're mm-hmm. winning but you're like all burned out and miserable and stuff like that, you're kind of missing the whole point of winning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... If you can win with the right approach to winning, I think that those two things together are very powerful. So win-win. Yeah. He uh, he attended Jackson Christian. I'm sure he could share oh, probably yeah. a couple situations of, For sure. you know, because you're basically given what you what you get. You yeah, know? like anybody that had a pulse was on the team. It was terrible. Like, what was your graduating class? Fourteen kids. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, they like, played soccer. So like, you basically need like. Yeah, we didn't have a football team because our school is too small. So. Wow. We had, I want to say, like 13 kids on the soccer team, and you have to have 11 on the field at a time. And that's including JV. Right. So, wow. they, they, yeah. so the whole team, the whole yeah. school was playing. And yeah. our goalie, my senior year, had never played goalie before in his life. He was actually a forward in hockey. Oh, wow. And he did he did an amazing job for not never playing before. Like, I give that kid mad respect because he's just like, he did such a good job for never playing. So That's why I try and tell our people. They're like, oh, you went 0-9 this year in football? And it's like, well, I mean, it's kind of like – some of it's probably on the coach, but, like, you can't control what kids attend mm-hmm. school. Like, obviously, Jackson High, they have a lot more turnout rate. Mm-hmm. So, they're going to have a lot more talent and people to pick from than Napoleon or Grass Lakewood, you sure, know? Sure, sure. And there's not enough rabbits to pass around for everyone, so not everyone's right. going to have those nutrients that you need to run a 4 4 or, you know. Yeah, if you have a big body to choose from, you're going to have much more consistent performance right there. exactly plus everything especially in schools you have these classes so you know um jay high just a couple of years ago was in a conference where they're playing the lansing area schools mm-hmm. and and those schools are big schools too but they're bigger than yeah. jackson high so so you know well, they, they got so, more yeah, chance jackson, to get a rabbit mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. so jackson <laughs> high might have i don't know 12 1300 kids and which means they have a lot more athletes to choose from but let's say Jackson High is going to play East Lansing, and East Lansing has like 3,000 kids. Mm-hmm. Well, East Jack, Jackson have a hard time beating East Lansing on a regular basis when they have twice as many kids that they can recruit from. Right. And even in Class C, it's the same way. If you're like a Class mm-hmm. C school, and I can't remember the exact cutoff now, but let's say you have 490 kids in your school, and that's the very, like you're the biggest Class C school in Michigan. And you're mm-hmm. another Class C school that has 300 kids. Right. That extra 190 kids makes a difference, mm-hmm. man. You're probably going to get an extra three or four really good athletes mm-hmm. yeah. that the other school. And now sometimes the little school happens to have a really good bumper crop of mm-hmm. athletes, and they're good anyway. But yeah, these things all matter, and people often don't notice that. Mm-hmm. Or even things like boys and girls. I remember one time we played East Jackson one year, and they had like 80 or 90 kids in their graduating class. But for whatever reason... There's only like 25 or 30 boys in that class, hmm. so you only got 25 or 30 boys to build a football right. team. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like we've had some years where we were really, really good, and there's maybe a graduating class of 100, but there's maybe 60, 65 boys. Well, mm-hmm. it's you know, right. it's not always a 50-50 split between boys right. and girls yeah. in any particular class too. So those there's all there's always a lot of things that go into. You know, mm-hmm. what kind of parents do you have? Do you have parents that are divisive? Do you have parents that are supportive? Right. That can make a big difference. If a parent's kind of creating kind of a I didn't really have too much experience with this, but I know for other teams that I watch, if you have a parent that's kind of creating like a civil war inside the team and right. telling the kids, oh, that coach sucks, doesn't know what he's doing, mm-hmm. you know, what the parent may not realize is they're getting, they're venting and getting that off their shoulder. But if you're saying really negative things in front of the kids, mm-hmm. you're telling the kids, don't listen to the coach. Well, guess what? The team might have been bad before. It's going to be a thousand times worse when the kids don't play for them. Because right. if you think about what I've been saying, getting the kids to buy into what you're trying to get them to do is a big part of it. It's like and they're just ruining making, everything. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's as tough as a teacher and a coach, but, you know, it's same thing in the classroom, same thing on the field. 
Like, even if I'm calling the wrong play, I need the kids to attempt it at the best possible. Like, sometimes I've, right. I'm certain I've made bad calls, and they worked out anyway because the kids just mm-hmm. did it. You know what I'm saying? But if you have, if the kids are kind of rebelling and they're like, I'm not going to try, it doesn't matter what plays you right. call, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a relate again, it's a relationship. You know, so much of the success I would have in the classroom was very much based on the kids sitting in this. Kids don't think about it that way. But they have as much of an impact on the classroom being an enjoyable experience mm-hmm. as, as I do with my lesson plan. Because when they're engaged and they're paying attention and they're asking questions and feedback, everyone's having a good time. Yeah. And that's the way football would be. Like I said, when kids would get to the end of practice, oh, man, practice is over because mm-hmm. they were engaged. They were involved with what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, in, you always have some bad practices. You always have some bad classes. It's like when you have a bad practice, what was the nature of the bad practice? Mm-hmm. Kids weren't engaged. There was other Climbing things Climbing barb fences. On. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, yeah there's, there's distractions <laughs> going on. So, so you know, you see kids looking up at the trees or the sky or they're, you know, they have a skydiving thing. If the kids are watching the skydiving planes and not paying attention. <laughs> Yeah. Those, Dude, yeah. those practices that take would be forever. every day. Yeah, those practices take forever. <laughs> because, oh man, we got 20 minutes left to practice. Because there's some days they're like, oh, isn't practice over with yet? And right. what's the common theme there? They were engaged. And then you were like push ups. Yeah, so now, so now I'm basically dragging them to the end of practice. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And the classroom is the same way. So, you know, in teaching, that's. If I could say anything to students, I'd say, hey, be aware, you have a huge impact in how your mm-hmm. education goes, how your team plays. Now, at some level, you're limited by how much talent you have. But, yeah. but you're right. actually creating the experience. You mm-hmm. should never look at it like, well, this teacher's going to have to do all this work so I can have a good time, or this coach has got to make right. everything exciting for me. It's like that's a very passive way of mm-hmm. going. You should ne- Same thing when you go to work, too. If you go to work, anything you do in your life, you should be actively engaged in what you're doing, mm-hmm. I think. It makes us much better. And then, frankly, it's the same thing for our teachers, too. There's some teachers, they just expect the kids to provide all the energy and stuff, mm-hmm. and they're just going to sit back. Right. Those teachers are miserable. They're not having a good time. You know? Right. Yeah, I think we got we got time for more question. Do you want to ask a question or? I mean, we can get a couple in real quick if you. Uh, I'm all right. I'm good listening. All right, I'll have, I have one question. So you earlier you're talking about uh, teachers that were kind of like mentors to you, maybe, and maybe took you under your wing and gave you like some of the ropes to like, you know, gave you some tips or something. Were there any teachers in specific that were there like relatively still? Like in the last few years that we're still teaching there, that might have been there when you were there. Or... Okay, so what do you mean exactly? Like, so like, what were some specific teachers that were like those mentor teachers to you? Oh wow, I mean, you could say all of them on some level. I mean, you, th- you learn. Um, this might sound crazy. You learn from the bad teachers and the good teachers. You know, yeah. bad teachers. You learn. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that kind of teacher, and that's actually very helpful. You know, it's too bad for the kids that are in their class, but. You know, it's good for me. It's like, I don't mm-hmm. want to be that kind of person. Right. Like, you have football players that are like, I don't want to be like that kid who just climb a bar yeah, fence. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, you know, I was very fortunate because Napoleon's a nice staff. You know, it's good, supportive people. Teaching is a weird business because you talk about mentoring because, you know, I, I once heard a person doing like a professional development thing one time and he kind of hit it on the nail. Teaching is like being at a zoo where the animals are in the cages, but every 53 minutes, a bell rings and they open the cage doors up and all the animals get to come out of the cages and interact with each other and talk to each other but mm-hmm. you only have four minutes of passing time mm-hmm. so in four minutes the bell rings and you go back inside your cage and there's a there's a lot of that like so much of what happens in teaching is in the classroom and there's very little interaction with other staff members other than like you know lunchtime or that passing time but having said all that um even though it's it's sometimes hard sometimes we with teachers on a regular basis there's definitely some teachers i think that really influenced me i think it really excellence I was drawn towards excellence when I would see teachers that are doing really good things and they don't have to be the same kind of teacher or even doing what you're doing but just you if you think about what I was saying before about the process that you do mm-hmm. is so critical so like if I see a teacher um, like Mrs. Gentner the kids she's love great. her mm-hmm. and why is she great she's a totally different teacher than I am we're not the same kind of teachers but I, I can watch it how she's very gentle and she's very patient with the kids that's something I can learn. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, if, if I look at a Coach Bunker and, and Bunker, you know, the inside <laughs> story, Bunker and I, we both had like a competitive thing going on because we both taught AP classes. So um, he's he's a tough guy and I'm kind of a tough guy in our own way as far as like academically. Right. The kids are tough. Mm-hmm. And so we'd, he'd actually kind of do this thing where we kind of push each other. And I think you need that in any kind of work environment. You need people who can kind of push in. He would sometimes come down with a – he teaches calculus, which is very different than history, so mm-hmm. not even the same class. But he would come down with, look at this test. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh. What do you got? This yeah. is a hard test. This is harder than any test you're going to give this whole year. He'd be smiling <laughs> oh, like that. Like, oh no, you wait till the next. You need test. a meet. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have. Yeah. I'm going to have essay questions that beat your calculus questions all day long. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's kind of in good nature we're teasing, right? Mm-hmm. But it was like a thing. You know, like I think you know teachers like. Gosh, I, I hate mentioning specific ones because it's like, well, they didn't talk about this teacher, but right. but, the, but some of the some of the challenging teachers that you know are pushing kids. Those are very valuable. You know, mm-hmm. because cause in a teaching, even though we're in cages and we only come out every 53 minutes, you need to know that the other teachers are upholding. And I think one of the things that helped at Napoleon was you know that every single teacher was holding kids accountable since that's what the job basically mm-hmm. is. You know, they're holding kids accountable for stupid things like you need to get in here about the time the bell rings. You need to, when, the, when we start class, you need to start paying attention. To us. And I, I knew that was going on in every class because when the kids are coming to my room, they're already in, cultured. Oh, the bell rang. It's time to start working because mm-hmm. you knew that was happening. Because I'll tell you, Constantinople songs coming in. Well, yeah. There. If there was a sub and the sub was out of control, you knew it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if you had, if the kids had that crazy sub the hour before yours, they came into your hour crazy. See what I'm saying? So there's a big. That's even though teachers don't get to interact too much, there's a lot of support going on there because when teachers are consistent from classroom to classroom to classroom, that makes the school run so much better. So Napoleon didn't have a lot of problems and stuff like that. Now part of it is you have nice families in the town, you have nice kids, and you don't have mean kids in Napoleon. But I know some nice little rural communities where the schools are crazy because there's not a consistency there. There's, you know, kids know that they can get away with all kinds of stuff here. And so then if you're the teacher trying to uphold standards and no one else is, mm-hmm. you're the bad guy. Right. Napoleon, you don't have to be a bad guy upholding the standard because everyone is. So that's mm-hmm. that's a big deal. That's like a really yeah. big deal. Mm-hmm. So, um, gosh, I feel bad because you want like specific mentors, but, you know, all of them in their own way, you know. Um, like when I first started coaching, I mentioned like Bob McCall. Yeah, I was going to mm-hmm. say. But, um, you know, in the classroom, you know, if you, if you know Bob, he was like a, he is a people person, man. He's always telling jokes. He's always laughing. He's having a good, he's never having a bad day kind of person. Right. And just watching that kind of, like, for example, I'm young, I'm a young teacher. I'm struggling with kids. I'm getting in conflict sometimes with them in the classroom. And then I watch how Bob comes just so easy with kids and joking with them and kidding with them and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, like I'm such a, I'm a really serious person. I'm like on task. Like, mm-hmm. We're gonna learn all. We're gonna learn World War Two, and we're gonna even if it kills you, kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah. literally. <laughs> so I'm right. like, I'm into it. So, um, but you know, like you watch Bob, it's like you know, you can just joke around and, and relax. Like if you're more relaxed and just joking with the kids, they're much more willing to learn about Pearl Harbor than if it's like, okay, here's the guy. Yeah, you're trying to match mm-hmm. the setting, huh? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and there's a lot of teachers in Napoleon that were like that, you know, over mm-hmm. the years. Um, you know, Tim Fry, I don't know if you knew Tim Fry at all. He's probably gone. No, he was gone time. by the time I but got in there. Him and Bob McCombs are really good friends. They're very similar. But I coached with Tim Fry for a year in football, like my third year coaching. And I he was at the middle school all the time. And he was very easy with the kids and just how he would kind of mess with them. And that was one of the big things I learned was you got to be able to mess with kids. Like, you're not a kid. You're not going to mess with them on their level. Mm-hmm. Like, you're a fellow teenager. But right. Mess, you know, just like, wow, what's this? What are you doing? Like, you call them out <laughs> on stuff. Right. You're right. razzing them. Yeah. Like, a lot of times, things that teachers get all uptight about, and maybe you're going to run a discipline note or something like that, you <laughs> don't have to go that far. Because once you start doing that kind of stuff, now it becomes like a conflict. And right. now you and the kid are going to have a fight. And they mm-hmm. There's just no respect there. Yeah, there's no need for that kind of fighting. But but a lot of times, you can just deal with it by, like, you know, if the kid says something inappropriate, really? What, what do you mean, seventh grade again or something? You know, like right, something. right. Yeah. And, they, and like, no high schooler wants to be compared to something. Right. But, like, well, if <laughs> but sometimes they revert back to middle school behavior. So, yeah. so like if you just kind of like tease, like a teasing thing, like, come on. Like, you're always calling out what's going to, mm-hmm. this is where you can be. And yeah. that's the mindset. Like, even when you're teasing, you always make sure it's like in a good nature. But you mm-hmm. learn that from watching other teachers and how they communicate with the kids and how they push them and stuff like that. So, everything from the tough academic teachers that hold the kids there. Those were mentors to me. Teachers that were easy teachers the kids liked. Why do the kids like them? That's some, kind of an important thing to learn. You know, what are they doing that kids seem to be responding to? So I think as a teacher, really, every teacher in that building should be a mentor, even if it's teaching you what not to do. Because otherwise, like, why are you even here? Right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, it's my Man, it's, just, it's hard when you take 30 years and, like, in a short period of time, you try to think of all the different right. things that people right. have done or influenced you. But there's just... You know, I was just very fortunate, you know, it's because um, I know teachers from other schools, and it's not always like that. There are mm-hmm. some schools where it's like a fight with the kids, and it's a fight with their teachers, and teachers rat on each other and try to turn each other, crazy stuff like that. And that just didn't happen. That wasn't the experience I had. 
You know, the mm-hmm. teachers are pretty tight. They looked out for each other, and there's kind of a mindset of, you know, you back up your fellow teachers. You don't throw them under the bus and stuff like that. Right. So that's a good, that's a that's a blessing to have. Not mm-hmm. every school has that. Yeah. Speaking of fights, though, real quick, there was a story he told us once, but you you never get to you never got to finish it because class ended or whatever. But you're saying that there was one year where there was this girl who wore like spiked boots or something, and you, there was like there was a fight going out in the hall, and you had to go out there and like break it up or something. Oh man, that's. I broke up a lot of fights. <laughs> well, he was so, telling this crazy story about like some dude cheated on a girl or whatever, and I don't oh, know what geez. happened, but it was like some of those stories. Mm-hmm. And I guess one day this girl who was cheated on like came in and wore like these spiked boots. Yeah, I was like looking for this the guy or uh-huh. the girl or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of fights <laughs> I broke up. When I first started teaching, uh, there was a much more laid back attitude towards fighting in school. And kids were getting fights, and they'd be back the next day at school. Or they might get suspended for a day, and they'd be oh, back really? at school. Oh, so, really? So kids would fight in school time. Now, this really struck me funny coming from the Detroit area. Now, I grew up in Redford, Redford Genius. That's not Detroit, Detroit. But, I mean, still, it's like the Detroit area. There were no fights in my high school that I can remember. Now, I'm sure really? they happened. But the fights were very uncommon. They were very mm-hmm. rare. But, of course, in, in the school where I went to, and, just make, and I got to realizing this as I had taught for a little while, in Detroit, you can't let kids have fights because mm-hmm. the consequences can be so much greater. Like, it could turn into, like, a huge brawl. Plus, right. if you have 1,300 kids in a building and fighting is a common thing, you have three or four fights a day, mm-hmm. you know, in a school that size. So their response, of course, was basically almost like the death penalty. Like, you get mm-hmm. in a fight, you're gone. Like, we mm-hmm. might not see you ever again. Yeah. Wow. So See you later, buddy. Of course, kids get in fights. So people, well, kids are going to do this anyway. Well, that's true. But consequences do impact kids so like in mm-hmm. my school kids did not get in fights in school because you knew yeah. there was no there was no upside there and i hate to say it but there's also a realization of you actually want to be able to beat the crap out of the kid and you can't do that in school because someone's going to stop the fight before you can really hurt them mm-hmm. so unfortunately when i was in school if kids got in fights it was after school hours at a park or someplace yep. mm-hmm. and referees and in everything. some ways that yeah. was much worse because there's no fighting in school like i said i can't remember one fight in high school but boy there was fights but those are bad fights. Like kids would get seriously hurt because there's no teacher coming to break it up. And to some extent, you had to be a little bit braver because if you're going to go out to the park to fight a kid, you'd bring your cadre of friends, but it might not go well. And yeah. If it gets really, really bad, there's no guarantee that kids are going to lay off if you're really getting whooped bad. Right. And be like Ralphie. To yeah. yeah, exactly. Stuff. Ralphie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Scott yeah. Farkas, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, Scott Farkas. And I know <laughs> one of the things I was about to point because it is kind of a nicer community stuff. To some extent, I got the sense for some kids there was a certain safety in getting in a fight in school because you're not going to really... You can count on that one guy coming yeah. in. Yeah. Mr. Bunker's coming down in the next 10 seconds. And he'll yeah. just not going to last. There was a time where he took a kid and lifted him against the locker. Oh, yeah. And it was like... T- like four feet above. Yeah, but even in Napoleon, like, the fights came to an end because the state had a mandatory two week suspension for fighting. And boy, once they imposed that, the fights ended. But for about the first four or five years, fights were very common. Kids got in them all the time, and you're just constantly breaking the fights. And I was a young teacher, so I'm always the one milling to the crowd there. So <laughs> right. there was, there's quite a few different memorable fights. But That's just, what you um, meant by extracurricular activities there that you have to be a part of? Oh, well, that's not officially. <laughs> no, that's more, yeah. yeah. But especially there's a lot of female teachers. In fact, the one you're talking about, uh, you know, the girls always fight over the guys. I don't know why, but um, yeah, there's I would, a lot of I would weirdos. think they'd beat the guy up. That's what I would do if I were them. But so they fight over the guy. So sure enough, this one girl, she has these spike boots on, and she she ambushed her, and she waited till she was in a class with a teacher who was a woman, small, diminutive teacher, so she Ms. knew McDivitt. there'd be no, 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 it wasn't her, it was another <laughs> no, teacher, was smaller, you know. And oh, geez. So she knew, she knew she'd have free reign to just mm-hmm. beat this girl pretty badly before anyone could get there. And sure enough, man, she got that girl by the hair and got her on the floor. And she started laying into her with those Yikes. tipped boots. Oof. She hurt her bad and she messed her up. She was screaming, you know, Finally, one of the male teachers heard mm-hmm. the ruckus, but of course, by the time he got there, she'd really gotten there for a while. So right. yeah, it's gonna be kind of scary. All kids can Jeez. do crazy things, and the girls are always the worst fights. You know, mm-hmm. I remember the one. Um, I'm on break and I'm coming down the hallway, and some girl had asked to go to the bathroom, and the girl who wanted to get her asked to go to the bathroom a minute later so she could meet her in the bathroom, and it's in the middle of the class time, so no one's in the hallway. Mm-hmm. You know, can't hear anything. So I just happened to be coming out of my room, and I'm walking down the hall. And I walked past the girl's bathroom, and the door was propped open. They have the bathroom stuff; you can't see in there. Right. But I can hear these grunts and groans, like, 
like, Only one can imagine a high school yeah, bathroom. Exactly, in a girl's bathroom, right? Yeah. And there's like a kid at the locker, and he's like, in his locker, he's like, Are they fighting in there? And he's like, He looks at me like, Yeah. Like, he doesn't care. You know, like, Jeez. So I'm like, what? He's like, I paid them so, to. So, right. So I, so I get to the girl's bathroom. Here's a guy going to the girl's bathroom in today's culture. So you know how this is like a risk, a life, a career risking mm-hmm. event. Right. So, but I, I kept no these, cell phones, though, yet. Yeah, I kept so. these girls kill each other. Yeah, so I'm yeah. like, I'm yelling in there. I said, hey, you guys fighting there? <laughs> Are you fighting? <laughs> Jeez, I'm seals in there. The... I'm coming in there right uh-huh. now. So I go some in there and sure this girl is straddling on top of this other girl. She has her on her back. And they are both have their hands in each other's hair. Girls always go for hair for some reason. And I yeah. and they're like they're like beat red like so they've clearly been at this for a long time because oh, they're like winded, panting very hard. That's why Shane O'Connor was a heavyweight exactly. box champion. Oh, this is beyond Shane O'Connor. I get them up, <laughs> and I mean they have huge hunks of each other's hair oh, in their wow. hands, and they're like bleeding and stuff like that. And I had to walk down. That was like a once a week occurrence when I was first. Really, it was crazy. Wow. I never would have guessed. The guys would fight every once in a while, but the girls were just... The worst we had was trying to... Like sneak out of the school to go to McDonald's for lunch. Oh, no. Because you weren't allowed to go sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think no one obeyed that rule. Yeah. No, I I know. As soon as the bell would ring, you would just hear... All these tires spinning in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. Half the school, Dude. Half the school district left to go to lunch. Somewhere. I can share the story. I can share the story because I'm a good. I'm good friends with Mr. Dillon, and he knows it anyway. But <clears throat> talking about Brad earlier, me, me and Brad and another friend, uh, we had gym fourth hour, and we had lunch right after fourth hour. And Mr. Dunn didn't care if we left a little early because we would always tell him like, "We got to get our stuff out." We just give him bull crap excuse. He'd be like, "Yeah, sure, go ahead." And uh, yeah, get Mr. Dutton in trouble. Yeah, well, oh, no, he's retired. <laughs> well, why do you think he had to retire? Yeah, no, I'm just joking. Um, we would go out the locker room way and go out toward the car, and we we're sophomores. And he was like one of the first cars to have his license. And uh, we were like, let's go to McDonald's. So we went. It was like the third or fourth time, and we had to go because Shamrock Shakes just started coming out. And we're like, there's no way we're missing that. We don't care about the stupid rule. And uh, well, we get back and we we're like hoping that Mr. Because you know the principals would sit at the like the lunch. In the cafeteria, so they would see who would come in and whatever. Sure enough, we we came in a little too early, and he was still sitting there. And he's like, "Boys, get over here!" And we're like, "Oh, dude, we're in trouble, man." And we're like, "We don't know what's gonna happen because he can, you know, he's hot and cold. You don't know what Mr. Dillon you're gonna get that day." And um, <clears throat> he's like, "What do you got there?" And I'm like, "We just got McDonald's." And he like looks around or whatever. And he's like, "Well, if you give me a few fries, I'll let you go." Oh, yeah, yeah, and then and so we just kept doing it though. Yeah, and we just kept giving them fries, and that's how we were able to go. But yeah, dude, there's a lot of funny stories. Well, thanks for coming on, man. It was a great honor. We wanted to make yeah. sure that you were our first yeah, it guest. Yeah, was awesome. Oh, for sure. And uh, yeah. we'll definitely have to follow with a part two sooner or later down the road. Oh yeah, man. definitely. Yeah, yeah thirty man. years you get a lot under your belt in thirty right. years. It's, it's been wonderful though. It was great teaching all those years. I miss it a lot because the kids are great. Right. I could, I could do it for 60, 70 years honestly. Yeah. Fun, so. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.